Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan and Tommy Martin. Today on the program, a talk about micro-hydropower. Ever thought of making your own electricity in a nearby stream? We'll talk with Don Harris, world-class guru on micro-hydropower and inventor of the Harris Hydroelectric Permanent Magnet Turbine about his experiences with these low-cost, high-return devices. Don lives up in the hills of Last Chance in northern Santa Cruz County in California, but his electric power generating systems have been installed in small stream sites all over the world. That plus science phenomena. Stay tuned for Planet Watch. Thanks for listening. We have our newscast starting us off first, and Tommy Martin's going to kick it off with a story he found. Yeah, it's a story about uh, our friends in South America. Brazilian President Michel Temer has cut the federal science budget by nearly half. Temer says the cut was a tough but necessary move to combat Brazil's escalating fa uh, failing deficit. The uh, decrease of 44% makes this year's federal science budget the lowest in 12 years. Brazil is home to nearly two-thirds of the Amazon rainforest, and the cuts come as deforestation rates are increasing for the first time in several years. Between August 2015 and July 2016, deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon increased by 29% over the previous year, making it the highest deforest deforestation level uh, recorded in the region since 2008. Brazil recently announced its plans of restoring 12 million hectares uh, hectares, or nearly 30 million acres, of deforested and degraded forest land by 2030. But with huge budget cuts, the plan is likely to fall by the wayside. Yeah, a hectare is big compared to an acre. It's like almost two and a half acres. A lot of the rest of the world uses the unit of hectare for land area. Um, back here in the United States, uh, we have a, an, an organization called the EIA, Energy Information Administration. And according to them, California has been putting out so much solar power that it has at times driven wholesale electricity costs down to nothing. And back on March 11th, total solar power production broke 50% of the state's demand for a time. The increase in utility-scale solar power, which grew 50% in the state just in 2016, last year, is quickly changing the landscape. 
Germany has also experienced this kind of explosive growth of solar. This coming spring, there's going to be a tremendous amount of hydropower available in California due to heavy snows this past winter and the coming floods of meltwater. So there may actually be too much electricity supply. <laughs> Such a surplus of solar electricity has happened. Um, well, the, the, the utilities often choose where this happens to curtail the power supply. But what's going to be needed in the long run as well as very soon is massive electrical storage capacity on the grid. There will be major incentives for investors to provide such infrastructure as they'll have access to essentially free solar power in the daytime and can then at night sell that electricity they've stored at handsome returns. California leads the way once again. Well, it's now been confirmed the super wealthy 10% put out more carbon than the rest of us 90%. In the U.S., according to a new study by Boston College, states with the wealthiest individuals put out the most carbon dioxide. 1% increase in the income share of the top 10% of the state's population results in tons of additional carbon emissions. Perhaps it's all those private jet trips or luxury condos to heat and cool. If you're wondering who's leading the pack, it's Texas with 800 to 900,000 metric tons. And guess who's second? California, 400 to 500,000 metric tons with Pennsylvania and Florida trailing the way with just a mere 200 to 300,000 metric tons. So every time um, the 10% gets wealthier by 1%, um, that sends carbon through the roof. And again, we don't know, didn't say exactly why, but the guess is that simply building these giant homes and and doubling the amount of jet trips and so forth, uh, trips to Mar-a-Lago golfing, <laughs> for example, uh, causes us to pile on the carbon. So maybe a carbon tax, after all, will be an effective tool. We can talk about that on a future yep. show. <laughs> that. Uh, but as we are wont to do, we interview people who have significant experience in alternative energy technologies. And this one in particular is exciting to me because my brother has uh, hydroelectric power in a very small generator on his property in Hawaii. Where he has a very big waterfall. I think it's a 25-foot drop. And I learned a little bit before talking with our guest about how it all works, and we're going to find out even more when we talk to Don. Don Harris is the inventor of microhydropower generator that can give you 100 kilowatts a day. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that'd be about right. So tell me uh, a little bit about your background and how you got into this field, and then we're going to talk about how all this works and whether people listening might, if they're near a stream, think about getting off the grid. Well, I grew up in Southern California and hadn't really thought much about renewables. Uh, in fact, I was involved in racing, a very different kind of world. What kind of but racing? But the world changed drag racing. Really? <laughs> Using special fuels, uh -huh. the opposite of what I do now. Nitro, nitromethane. <laughs> but the Vietnam War and the whole uh, back to the land movement was a changing experience for all of us. And I bought some land, moved out into the woods, and there was a creek running through my land. I had, at, at that time, the Bible sort of was the whole earth catalog. And I got in touch with everybody that were selling hydro at that time, and most of them didn't do little systems or they were out of business. And so I was kind of compelled to build one myself, a very primitive one. But it was at the right time because there were a lot of people moving off. The, that was a 
big exodus out of the cities into the rural areas. And there were a lot of people moving onto land that had uh, running water. And the solar panel had just really come into existence as a, as a thing that you could buy. So this whole new renewable energy market sprang up kind of all at once. And you had the patent. So you, uh, you made some good money on it, I assume. Well, I never never patented anything. It was uh, This was primitive back home, down home stuff, and it started out quite primitively and just evolved as needed. Right. And I figured that it would cost more to patent it, than, and th that's a world of different kinds of people than me, and I wouldn't be very good at it anyway. So I just made them and kept changing them and, and selling them. But one does have your name on it nowadays, It has right? a name. Yeah, I use my name rather than a typical name of a business because we were having a problem with the county uh, over the building codes and if you use a name other than your own name you have to get a fictitious business license so by using my own name I didn't have to do that and I didn't have to go into the county and <laughs> ruffle feathers there I'm sure if we have time we can talk about your battles with the county of Santa Cruz over living off the grid it seems like something you know, everyone would be encouraged to do, but it doesn't sound like when the beginning of the Back to the Land movement happened, especially in Santa Cruz County, that it was fully embraced in the way it might be now. No, but a lot of this uh, off-grid electricity was one of the major issues. And uh, that turned out we were right about that. I mean, at that time, the, the general rule was you could run a house off-grid on a generator, but as soon as the grid was around, you had to hook up. Well, now there's a lot of off-grid disconnected systems, and, of course, there's net metering. So uh, renewables won that, that battle. Yay, <laughs> one for humanity. Net, <laughs> net metering is where you can run your meter backwards. You're connected to the utility, uh, and, you know, you become a power supplier as well as a consumer. So, right, let's, let's define further. Um, off the grid really means just that, that you are completely self-contained in your energy production and use, correct? Right. Uh, the, the first thing that most people did is they would run their house on a 12-volt battery. And if you take the battery in, if you went to town every other day, you put the battery in your car and you had a double charging system and you'd charge the battery up. That didn't work very well because batteries don't like to be discharged deeply that way. And so it was pretty expensive and we were buying a lot of batteries. But And uh, I, I actually think I may have had the first solar panels in Santa Cruz County. I'm not sure about that. They, somebody got some cells and soldered them together, and they were like $30 a watt. I mean, it was extremely expensive. Now it's like $1 now a watt. Now it's under for, a dollar yeah, a watt. For reference. And did you ever think we'd be here? We just had a news story that we just broke 50% solar power. No, that's, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> uh, there, there is uh, there's something about, we talk about storage, uh, I think that the biggest place for hydropower really now might not be so much in running power from f existing falling creeks because we've pretty well used that up in large measure. But as bad as storage, if you have what's called pump storage, when you have surplus power, you pump water from a reservoir up into a higher reservoir, and then when you need the power, you run it back down as power. And any place that you have two reservoirs or two sources of water, one above the other and not too far apart, You've done most of the work. You've got the infrastructure. All you need is a pipe and a turbine and some wires to hook it to the grid. So there's an easy way to make solar not just daytime power, which is what it is now, but make it baseline power. Hmm. So you and can work together with hydro is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, you, you definitely need storage if you're going to have uh, if you're going to have solar become a major part of the grid because of course the sun doesn't shine at night. Not but it's yet. not that hard to say. And then there are batteries. Uh, uh, Tesla. 
uh, they're working on battery systems for houses. So there's a lot of thinking about how to store energy and make make solar baseline power. And what is the cost of if you did have a stream near your home? Is there anything? Any kind of barrier other than cost? Would there be some uh, environmental laws? That there are. There's a lot of regulatory laws, and and they're very very different from one place to another. Uh, California has uh, quite a bit of regulation. Uh, they are pretty good. At, there's a distinction, but near water use, of course, and is has been a problem ever since probably humans were one tribe was squabbling over another over over water. But uh, uh, hydro is what's called a non-consumptive use. The interferences between where you pick it up and put it in the pipe and where you drop it back into the creek, you do have to be careful about not taking too much out and how you take it out and how you put it in. But you're not using it. You're not pulling it out and putting it someplace else and drying the creek up in general. So you're just diverting it in one space. Right. It's and what's the average cost um, if you were literally, you know, by a creek and you wanted to pursue this? Is there um, a huge range? If the simplest system would be X, what would be the most complicated? Uh, there, there's the the for little DC turbines, of course, it depends on whether you do it yourself or you hire somebody to do it. But if you're doing, if you're talking about just the materials involved, the the turbines run a thousand to two thousand dollars. The pipe can be anything from if it's a if it's a waterfall, it's a very short pipe. If it's sort of flat land, the pipe has to be longer, and because of that, it has to be bigger. So the pipe can vary from twenty dollars to a thousand dollars, and then you need batteries to store it. In the early days, we were mostly our houses were DC; they were kind of like big trailers, so we didn't have an inverter. So you you just charged a battery, and you may need a regulator, which is another hundred and fifty dollars, and then everything ran off of that. Now that's pretty rare. Most houses are AC, and they're running conventional technology, and that requires an inverter. A little house can get by on a $1,500 inverter. A big house might be a $2,500 or $3,000 inverter. Now, there's labor, of course, involved in all of that. Laying pipe when I was young was fun. At this point, it's not so much fun anymore. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, And so uh, that, could, that can add quite a bit, the same as with solar. If you put your own solar panels up, it's pretty inexpensive, but... Wow. So I'm counting all this up, and I'm still under $10,000, and, you know, most solar systems are above that, and um, is this something that could power, you said, um, a small to large house, depending on the size of... Well, I ran my shop for a long time, where I actually made kind of a point of the fact that I was using my little hydro to run the shop to make big hydro, to make many more hydro. So it was kind of a parody on nuclear power. We called it a hydro breeder. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I, I saw that once. I hiked up there and you showed me your hydro breeder factory. <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, interject here that if people have questions for our guest, who's Don Harris, he is an, in, an inventor of hydro solar power microsystems, you can write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com that's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan and this is Planet Watch we're talking about micro hydropower which is something you can do in your own backyard if you're lucky enough to live near running water many of us in California are not but uh, there are many who are I got a question for you Don what about the fish I know that, I mean, you know, here, here we got one of the world's experts uh, on small hydropower, and yet he's actually, he calls himself a turncoat because he's sort of saying nowadays that maybe the applicability of this isn't so great anymore because we're really kind of impinging on the environment. But, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts about that? Well, uh, I actually have changed my thinking quite a bit on that because in the beginning you didn't think too much about it. Where I live, 
it's a peculiar set of circumstances. There are no fish in Last Chance Creek. And the result, that is probably the result of the fact that for a long time, Big Basin Sewage Treatment Plant was on the Waddell. And, uh, and it, it, or maybe there never were, but there probably were. So I didn't have to think much about it. But it is a problem. And it's, it's a slippery slope. If you, we, we don't understand everything about how the environment works. And over the years, I've become more and more reluctant to take a lot of the water out of the creeks. I've learned more about how environmental systems work. And uh, I, at this point, I encourage people to minimize their pull of the water and to stay below maybe 10 or 15% if you can. But there's, a temp there's always a temptation in a dry year or when you need a lot of power to, to plug up the creek, put a bigger nozzle in, and take more. And that's a problem because, uh, in theory, I guess you'd want to have heavy-duty regulation. But my, experiences, my experience with government is that regulatory agencies tend to favor big money. And so if you're little... You don't have much cloud, and so it may make something almost impossible to do. And if you're big, you can essentially buy the system and do what you want. So I've tried to put in my literature as much information as I could about how to protect the environment. But now, with the price of solar under a dollar a watt, there's an awful lot of places where it's more cost-effective to put in a solar system than it would be to put in a hydro. And I think that's environmentally really a positive thing. Would there be a situation where it makes total sense to put in hydro? Like, let's say you live in a really rainy part of Washington State and oh, sure. <laughs> have more water than sun. As long as you're taking a small percentage of the of the creek. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, there's a lot of places where it makes sense. Where I am, it makes sense in the winter because we, in fact, slightly reduces the flooding that would be going on. And could you disconnect it? Like, if you were worried about the fish, could you, when the stream is really flowing, the winter, have it running, and in the summer, just take it offline? That's what I do. I go oh. down and turn it off. Okay. And now this summer, it may be enough to keep it running. It is a little easier on batteries than solar because it's 24-7 charging, and so you don't run the batteries down as much at night and up during the day so there's that so it takes a smaller battery pack to run hydro for the same amount of power sure. so there are a lot of technical variabilities but for example in washington one of the things they learned is when they log an area you can't take anywhere near as much water out of a creek as before they log it for the reason being that that fish many species of fish are very sensitive to the temperature of the water and when the canopy covers the creek it does, there's not sunlight hitting the water, but if you take half the water out of a creek, you're putting the same amount of sunlight into a smaller amount of water and it heats it up more. Mm -hmm. And so that dramatically reduced the amount of hydro uh, the power that they could generate out of the uh, places uh, up in that state. But if you're just yeah. comparing it to big hydro dams, which pretty much stop all fish migration, I mean, we're, we're talking about a far lesser impact, aren't we, when, when we're comparing those? Maybe it's apples and oranges. But. Well, it, it, that's true, although they have come up with some pretty fancy uh, ladders for uh, things that sort of work. But on the other hand, a way, of, a way I look at it is big hydro is like your carotid artery. But on the other hand, people, for example, that smoke a lot, all the little blood veins in their fingers stop flowing very well and so a, a million little creeks can interfere with spawning as much as a big river can so it's it's really all one thing and we have to look at it that way right great way to look at it joe did you have some questions well you know you? you were talking about the economics of it and the price uh one of the things i think i learned from you a, a while back uh, you know we talk about dollars per watt and cents per kilowatt hour where the kilowatt hour is actually the unit of 
energy, electrical energy. And, uh, you know, solar's getting down now to where, I don't know, maybe uh, it's in the teens, you know, 15 cents a kilowatt hour or something. It's getting competitive with the utility mix. But I think you told me that the cost of large hydro, anyway, uh, was like a quarter of a cent per kilowatt hour. Is that right? Yeah, this comes out of PG&E because they have a lot of... Uh, but there's, it's not just exactly that. It, the reason for that is that those hydro uh, plants uh, up in the Sierra were put in back when costs were much lower and uh, environmental uh, rules were easier. So if you did it now, it wouldn't be quite so cheap. But it's like a quarter of a cent per kilowatt hour in a wet year What at the, what we call bus bar costs. That's the cost of the power as it enters the grid, what the utility pays for it. And that, so it's vastly lower. But we've kind of exhausted. That's the thing that's different between, say, wind and solar compared to hydro. Both of those, you can much over, you can put solar panels pretty much anywhere. I mean, there are better and worse places for it, and the same with wind. But with hydro, there are a fixed number of creeks, and you can't make more of them. And so it's a very limited thing. And we've kind of used at least the bigger stuff we've used up. So it's uh, those th that was that's a very big difference, but it's exaggerated by those historical circumstances. Yeah, well, now though, I used to hear. Uh, I think the Union of Concerned Scientists had a slideshow that I sometimes took around, and uh, they they said that there are thirty thousand small dams in the United States alone that are um, still actually available to be retrofitted. You know, they're for flood control and irrigation, but they could be retrofitted or, or tapped off of for small hydro. Uh, do you, have you heard things like that? I'm sure that's that? true. And of course, some of them probably would be a good idea. I'm sort of involved in the reverse up on the Klamath River. Oh, There's I've an effort that. to try to take down some of the dams that are up there because of their, not all of those are hydro dams, but their environmental impacts on the, on the salmon runs has been fairly significant. It's exciting to think that there's actually a movement to remove dams for the fish, um, especially when they're silted and not needed. We did that in the Carmel River That's Basin, right. and they did a big workaround engineering project to get the silt not to just all come down at once. It was quite complex. They rerouted the river around the dam. Yeah. So it can be done. And it's funny, we came here to talk about hydropower, but we're talking about another important <laughs> environmental issue, which is yeah, keeping well, the fish alive. Everything has its pluses and its minuses. I've solar... Uh, especially if it's rooftop solar, because if you do big utility size solar, you might have an impact by covering up square, many square miles of earth. But if you put it on rooftops, you've already, you're putting it where that's land that's already covered. You're putting it where power is being produced, so you don't have to move it around a lot. It's really, a, the only thing is it's, it isn't quite so simple to figure out how to work it because it isn't the utility making the power, it's people themselves. And so that has to all be figured into this the system yes hey we have a question from a listener dan uh he's saying how scalable are these hydro systems in other words how many homes could one typ typical system support also how much maintenance does one system require and what percentage of people could use a hydro system based on where they live <laughs> last question <laughs> what, what is the energy loss associated with using the hydro system to store the energy from solar. Maybe I'll have to take them yeah, one. Maybe, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe I should just, just well, ask them what Well, as far as the scalability question, 
they could they go all the way from three or four thousand megawatts down to maybe 25 or 30 watts now there's a big distinction between ac and dc dc systems work up to about maybe a kilowatt or a couple of kilowatts beyond that they become cumbersome and you'd have to have a huge battery pack but you have enough to run straight ac power you can't run ac power on really small loads because for example to start a little motor or refrigerator might take a thousand watts but you only run 50 once it's started with dc you pull the power out of the battery to do that with ac you you have to you can't there's no storage so you have to have a big system but it's the but scalability there's different types of turbines and and different sizes from bottom to top uh, yeah, another one was... Uh, uh, losses in batteries, storage yeah. losses. Uh, a, a good lead-acid battery, I've had a number of different types that I've tried over the years, is about 90% efficient when they're new, but they do deteriorate over time. The typical batteries we were using were forklift batteries, and they would last about eight years. So that is probably the dark side of off-grid uh, power batteries. Now, they, uh, I tried nickel-iron batteries, which are less efficient, but they're very environmentally benign. They were the old Edison cell. They're nickel and iron, and the electrolyte is potassium hydroxide, which is what you get in a forest fire. But they're not very efficient, and they, they, uh, they you have to replace. I used to have to carry 20 gallons a year up to put into the batteries to keep them working. Right. Now, the lithiums and things like that are looking uh, like they're going to be more efficient. Lithium is especially good for cars because it's light. One of the problems I see with lithium batteries is we're up until recently we weren't using much lithium and we were getting most of it out of Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Now we're starting to use a lot more. Well, it turns out that there's ru- some of the Russian republics in <laughs> Afghanistan. I hate to see us using the military to defend our lithium supply like we do with our oil. But batteries, any two dissimilar materials, have electrical potential. And so there are a lot of other possibilities, even a saltwater battery I've heard about. I don't know much about the efficiency of it, but I'm sure we can develop ones that are not only uh, uh, efficient, uh, but also uh, benign environmentally. Uh, yeah, let me, let me see. There was also the one about uh, what's the energy loss associated with using the hydro system to store the energy from solar. I guess that's the one you just... The other one was... Uh, about maintenance. Yeah, oh, maintenance. maintenance. Yeah. Actually, uh, it depends. Uh, uh, when I my for the first turbines that I built, I was using car alternators and then rewinding them. Well, those had to be, they would quit after about a year or thereabouts because the brushes would wear out. <laughs> now, uh, the alternators pretty much run continuously. Uh, if you have a lightning strike, you might take a diode bridge out, which is, uh, uh, I've mine's run five and a half years without me touching it. <laughs> and uh, and my my turbine is pretty ugly. It's I, it was all parts that I couldn't sell. They were damaged cosmetically or in one way or another. So I just used them up that way. And so it's a pretty reliable technology. If you have a lot of silt in the water, particularly granular silt, uh, decomposed granite, that can eat up uh, a wheel pretty fast. And so what you normally do then is you put in a settling uh, tank so that you let the the, the particulates settle out. But I have mostly uh, uh, clay silt, and that just polishes things up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I had, an, I had a question. Um, you know, you talk about being off the grid as feeling good and being independent person and not being dependent on giant electric companies. What um, other motivations do people tend to have to want to be off the grid? Are they thinking the grid could go down or that there's going to be a collapse of some sort? I mean, what do you think, what are the customers you deal with say to you 
about their reasoning why they'd want to invest in this as opposed to, you know, something connected to the group. Yeah, there was a big, uh, remember uh, the panic over computers at the turn of the century? Y2K? Y2K. <laughs> I sold more turbines that year, and I tried to discourage it because <laughs> wow. they thought, well, it's going to go down. My car's going to stop running. Everybody thought that that, that was the end of the world. And uh, uh, I'm sure that most of those turbines were just are sitting unused someplace. Mm. And I, the, what I learned about that, if, if I were a huckster salesman, I learned something. If you tell people that, they panic and want to buy more. It's kind of like the panic over toilet papers that have happened. Mm. You know, <laughs> or gasoline. And, and, and so you try to discourage it. <laughs> they think that means that... There's a shortage, and, and they'll double up and buy two or three, or try to. You know, I, I couldn't. <laughs> it, it, it overwhelmed me at, the, at one point. <laughs> and uh, so there is that kind of thinking. And for, in fact, in, I still think if I were in town and putting a net metering system, solar panels on my roof to go into the grid, I would make it a battery-based system. In the early days, they were much less efficient, but now they're comparable efficiency. <laughs> and that gives you two, two advantages. It gives you back up in the event that the grid goes down you become a standalone system and it also means that you have a way to uh, if the utility price goes up for connecting too high you can do the same thing you'd say well it's cheaper to just buy batteries and go off grid mm -hmm. so, so there's uh, so an economic reason di di yeah. why distribution of any kind of decentralization of of of, uh, of energy and sovereignty you might say is i think a good thing well, then you're not beholden to these wild price spikes that could right. happen depending on conflicts far away. But is there also some thought, and I started to read, I haven't finished a book called The Grid, <laughs> that sounded like it's a lot more vulnerable than we like to think it is, just simply because it aged and it hasn't been kept up. Have you read anything about Oh, this? yeah. Well, there, there, of course, there's the smart grid that they're working on, and there's a lot of thought of what that means. Well, we were just talking the other day. Back in 1859... We think that there was a shower of high-energy particles that hit the Earth. You know, when, the, when a solar spot erupts, it goes out kind of straight. And occasionally, it'll hit the Earth. Well, at that time, there was the only long wires that really existed were the telegraph wires. And it started fires in telegraph stations all across the country as a result of that high-energy. Now, if that happened now with the wires and the grid that we have, now they have tried to put in some a lot of complex protections which may or may not work. But th that is a risk. Any, any complex system like that, and one of the things that think tank people think about, are there enough people, the old timers, in the old days, the grid worked by people would look at their meters, and if the voltage got low, they'd turn up a generator, if it, or the frequency started to get too fast. Now that's all done by computers. We don't know if there's enough of the old timers around that could do that in the event that all of the computational aspects of the thing went down. So that's what smart meters are part of. That, well, or, or hopefully it is smart, and it How isn't smart. more and more mechanization to where it's even less. We don't. I don't really know exactly what they're doing. The the efficiency will go up because there are about fifty percent of the power is lost at the grid, and they can improve that dramatically. But oh, that's if, a big one. If you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. We're talking with Don Harris, who is a micro hydropower expert and inventor here in Santa Cruz County, and has it on his own property as well as an installed probably thousands of systems? I made about 3,500 Pelton wheels, but they're not all, some of them were replacement wheels and some some were uh, to other people to build systems, so. <laughs> and uh, couple, uh, all kinds of things are coming to mind here at once, but we have another email from Linda. 
what distance from the running water would make generating electricity from it not viable? And then doesn't it matter at what grade the creek is running and not just the volume of water available? Good question. Well, the second question first, the, the power that you get out of a hydro system is the, um, the drop, the amount of drop multiplied by the amount of water. Now, if it's, a if it's not a steep grade, you have pipe loss to take into account. That means you're going to have to have a bigger pipe to keep the losses down. Friction. And, that, and that, that runs the price of the system up. With regard to distance, up in, t in, the, in the early days, 12, 24, and occasionally 48-volt systems were all we had for DC systems. With 48 volts, you could go maybe a third of a mile before you were starting to buy an awful lot of copper. But now we can step the voltage up just like the utility does. We can, some of the systems that have been put in are running at 10,000 volts, and you can run that through something not much bigger than telephone wire. So the distance really isn't a factor too much, other than that if you're running a long wire, you have to protect it and bury it, and that's, that can be difficult. But uh, technically, it's not a problem. And uh, is the Department of Energy offering rebates or some sort of subsidy to these systems that you know about? Uh, no. California doesn't allow hydro into the net metering program. Some states do. Mostly it's, uh, uh, it, uh, it's the paperwork involved in, in, in all of that is so great. I, I looked into it at one time and then finally I gave up on it. I was getting ready to kind of get out of the business. and. That was a world. I, I prefer making stuff and going tromping out into the woods. I don't particularly like dealing with governments and bureaucracy. <laughs> Probably couple, not alone. A couple things we can tell about Don here besides his being a whiz on hydropower. He knows a hell of a lot about electricity, but he's also kind of what I call a, a friendly radical. <laughs> and I, he, he's got full of, he's full of stories, and I have one I want him to tell us a little bit about. It was... It was a, a beautiful thing, and then it turned into kind of a tragic thing. Uh, Don, was you were working in the Peace Corps, right? Or you were involved down, down there in Nicaragua, is that right? Well, that wasn't a Peace Corps. That was a group in, uh, in uh, uh, Berkeley that was, uh, it was not illegal to go to Nicaragua, but it was discouraged by the uh, government. That was when I think Ronald Reagan was president and the Contras were. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us the story of uh, Ben Linder. Some of our... Listeners may remember the name Ben Linder. Yeah, he was, uh, Ben Linder had gone down a couple, I went down in, seven, in 60, 86. He went down about 83, and he'd been there. Uh, he actually used to ride a unicycle around to encourage the people of, in Managua and various places to go get uh, vaccinations and so forth. <laughs> but he was also putting hydro systems in. He put in a big hydro system. But the Contras, uh, most... I mean, what, what, what Reagan called freedom fighters was really a destabilization group. They went down and they, that's what you, they wanted to destabilize that government. And he was killed. He was basically assassinated by, by us. But he had come out and helped us. A month before that happened, he came out and helped us with our project. He, he could speak Spanish well. And we had a technical problem about how to run the pipe and what way to do it. And we could hardly communicate well enough to do that. And he solved that problem. But he was then assassinated, and it became a big issue. There were 3,000 people that went to, uh, uh, went to uh, uh, his funeral up in San Francisco and uh, maybe a few hundred down here, all over the country. In fact, the fact that he was killed may well have been 
what kept us from invading Nicaragua, because I think there was a, a, an impulse to do that at the time. So what was the deal? Why was he considered a threat? You know? Well, he was... In a destabilization, you want, you want to stress people to make it hard for them to live so they'll get angry at their government. And he was doing the opposite. He was putting in power plants and helping people get by in the outlying areas. And that's what destabilization does. We, we do it. Other countries do it. I mean, that's just kind of the nasty habit of world politics these days of hmm. what you do to people. To hmm. Speaking of... <laughs> Uh, let's see, Tommy. Yeah. yeah um, speaking of Nicaragua, I was just wondering uh, what the hydro system is like in other countries. Like, are are we technically the leader, or are other countries jumping ahead of us? Well, at this point, we're, we kind of tapped out early. The first big hydro system that was produced was by Nikolai Tesla, and he put a, a system in at uh, Niagara Falls hmm. and ran the wires from there to New York City, and that was when AC power, because there'd been a squabble on between uh, Tesla and uh, Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison had little DC generating stations where in, in town, and the power, you could only run the power a couple of blocks. The people re close to the station had really bright lights, and the ones a long way off, they were dim. <laughs> but he figured out AC power. He, uh, Tesla did. Tesla did. Westing, or, uh, 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 Thomas Edison would work and work and work and work. Tesla would just pop into his head, and he'd, he saw the whole AC system and the transformer and everything all at one time. He was one of those, kind of an Einstein type. Well, yeah, and there was a story about how Tesla, uh, Tesla kind of adored and worshipped Edison, but Edison felt threatened by his brilliance and spurned him and told him to get lost. <laughs> and so then there. you ended up with what? Uh, Con Ed versus uh, he went to he went to uh, George Westinghouse and, and Westinghouse then backed AC power and, and also Edison was doing all these stunts proving how dangerous AC power was by electrocuting animals maybe even right. some pretty big ones that went and on for years they had West or uh, Thomas Edison had this like a carnival show and they would go to the pound and bring out animals. And they would electrocute them with AC power to show how dangerous it was. And it turned out DC was actually more it dangerous. It is more dangerous. <laughs> when, when they, it, it's the reason that AC was more dangerous because it was much higher voltage. It's the voltage that's the risk. But DC power at any particular voltage is more dangerous. And the irony was that when the electric chair was developed, it was a DC device. So well, that's, that's sort of a... Tough note to leave it on. Um, we only have a couple minutes, so let's see if we could steer it back to microhydro as a something every person could possibly do if you have a stream near you. Uh, where could they go for more information, and where would you recommend the first stop be if you're looking outside and you're hearing the water running and it runs year-round? Where would you go, and uh, what would you share with people as some final thoughts? Well, uh, if, if in California, I would go to my neighbors first, Make sure that everybody's on with you. And then I would go to the environmental department, studies department at the local uh, uh, school that has it, and to find out what the, the environmental circumstances that you're operating under. And I'd get my ducks together before I ever went and talked to government about anything. Good idea. Yeah. And what about looking online or going to your site? Are, is there information about um, kind of first steps? Well, uh, what I would recommend is... Uh, Home Power Magazine. It's a general magazine about renewables. Holding uh, it up to the mic here. Yeah. Or to the, it's, yeah. A, it's, it's been around <laughs> since 1987, and it covers all of the renewables. It started out on basic stuff, and now it's a pretty sophisticated magazine. 
and uh, it's down home. I mean, it's, it really is good in pretty much every way. So there and, are contractors that do this in most communities, if you were to go wanting a professional to help you install it? Probably not so much with hydro. Mm -hmm. I mean, plumbers, yeah. I, uh, what would happen is somebody like me would I'd have to, I'd talk to a plumbing company and tell them the particulars that are different that because plumbing is plumbing in general, right? And agricultural water systems are not much different than hydro systems, but there are some aspects that are specific. It's not a big industry like solar or wind is now. Right. So if people want to contact you and have questions, are you willing to answer a few? Sure, uh, I'll answer questions. I I'm not making them anymore. Right. But uh, uh, do I even remember my? I just got on. Uh, I just got a smartphone. I'm not very good at that yet. And my, what is my uh, pa Papa Don P A P A D O N H two O all small case uh, at gmail.com. Oh, I didn't oh. even know that. Uh, Papa Don H two O at gmail.com. And you can also write to us at Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com if you missed. Oh yeah. And one last thing. How about a shout out to our friends at SEI, Solar Energy International. They used to do hydro workshops. Do they still they do st those? They still do. I've, yeah. I've done a few for them. Uh, Solar Energy International is a wonderful organization. It, it, I think they're spread out now. They were originally in Colorado. And I think now they're doing workshops all around. Uh, and their website's easy to remember, solarenergy.org. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming down on Planet Watch. Uh, we're so grateful that you spent time with us to teach us about this whole different area of energy, most of us. Oh, I enjoyed coming down and talking about it. Really appreciate <laughs> it. It's been raining lately, so it's kind of a good it's time good for, for that. It's a good year for hydro <laughs> yes, in California. Indeed. That's Don Harris with us on Planet Watch. Thank you for being here. And this is Planet Watch with Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan. And we are going to shift gears as we always do right about this time on the program and give you some food for thought. Mm -hmm. And um, that can mean just about anything. It's usually somewhat uh, timely to the season. And I think Joe has something about palindromes, which we really had a good time with the other day, last time we talked yeah, about them. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we'll get to that in just a second. I'm going to mix up the order here. I want to do a little bit of sky news because, hey, just a few hours from now, tonight is full moon. <laughs> and, um, you know, full moon means the moment when the moon is closest to being directly opposite the sun. Now, if it is exactly directly opposite the sun, then you can't see it. Well, it's in the Earth's shadow. It's, it's eclipsed. You, you can see it by light scattered through the Earth's atmosphere around the edges of the Earth. But anyway, that's not happening. Uh, <laughs> it, it usually skirts the edge of the Earth's shadow. And uh, so, as I think I've said before, but hey, we get new listeners all the time, uh, you can look for the bunny in the moon. And <laughs> when you see the full moon or there or nearby, like last night I saw it and the night after the full moon, you'll see the dark patterns on the moon, which are frozen lava. They look just like a left profile of a rabbit facing to the left. <laughs> and uh, you can't miss it. You can't miss those ears up there. <laughs> and uh, they say that it's the most commonly, in all the world's cultures, more common than the man in the moon. And it's deeply related to the rabbit's foot being a good luck charm. Hmm. So, uh, hmm. so there you go. And <laughs> how often are lunar eclipses? 18.5 um, years or something like that? Or that uh, oh, there are cycles, Saros cycles, S-A-R-O-S, which uh, group solar eclipses and lunar eclipses, uh, but uh, heck, you can see a, a lunar eclipse every couple or three years. They're visible from all over half of the world, at a, whereas solar eclipses like the one this August 
um, they, you know, are such a narrow path, you know, maybe 60 to 100 miles wide going across part of the earth, and we're lucky this summer to have it going across the U.S. Those, you, you have to be in the right place. It's a lot harder to get to those. They come around every few years, too, but, you know, you coming right to your doorstep? No. It's <laughs> going to be a maybe. long time. <laughs> and but, how many have you seen? I've How many seen, lunar I've eclipses? Seen, oh, lunar eclipses, tons of them. I don't know, dozen, maybe more than a dozen. More than everyone else but, in this room. <laughs> heck, four in just the last couple of years. They had a foursome every half a year, you know. But uh, solar eclipses, I've seen four total eclipses of the sun. And you have to do this. You, or as my dad used to say, uh, if you haven't seen that, then you haven't lived. <laughs> that was his we phrase. Have not you haven't lived. lived. Haven't but anyway, lived. tell you more later about why that is. But back to... Uh, palindromes and um how much time oh we got plenty of time here right? it's gonna be a long palindrome <laughs> yeah well you know i did a bunch of them the other time and did i do the longest one like on our first show when we did that did i do the one about doc note i dissent a fast never now i'm popping my pee there on purpose because this one i'm going to do as a riddle um, a palindrome is a word or a phrase or a sentence that is spelled the same forwards as backwards. I'm not going to do the whole one for you. I'm going to give you the first half of it, and then you can just write it down and reflect it around and figure out where the spaces go to get a sentence that makes sense. So here's the first half of this palindrome. And next week, we'll do the whole thing, okay? We'll, we'll give tough. you the answer. So here we go. Doc, note, I dissent, a fast, never p, p. The P at the beginning of the next word, that's the pivot point of this. That's the center of this palindrome. And is DOCC, D-O-C-K? D-O-C, -C, oh. like a doctor. Okay. No, yeah, like, good question. Not like a doc <laughs> that you walk out Spelling on. Spelling matters. <laughs> <laughs> and note, uh, you know, like... Say note, it again. Note. Doc, note, a fast... No, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> doc, note, I dissent. And that's not decent. It's dissent, like disagree. So doc, note, I dissent. A fast, never... So, um, all right. Figure it out. Just, just all you have to do is take those letters and write them in reverse, and then, but you'll you'll just get a string of letters. You'll have to figure out where the spaces. How go. many more words are there? Hmm. Uh, how many was that? Seven or eight or nine? So it's about halfway. Probably about the same. Yeah, it's halfway. Okay. So I got some more here. I mean, there is a single word, as far as I know. The longest single word palindrome is the name of a language that is spoken in Southeast Asia called Malayalam, M-A-L-A-Y-A-L-A-M, <laughs> Malayalam. <laughs> so that's a palindrome. Yeah. Now, other palindromes are like a Toyota. <laughs> that's a palindrome, <laughs> a Toyota. <laughs> or there's a bakery up in the town way up in far northern California called Wairika. You know, there's Eureka, but then way up near the border with Oregon, Wairika, Y-R-E-K-A. So it's Wairika Bakery. Mm. That's a palindrome. Oh, I love <laughs> that. Bakery. That's wonderful. <laughs> and, um, okay, now here's a couple longer ones. Um, I'll just say it first, and then if you have questions, we can discuss it. Tell me if this makes sense. Loops are macaroni art, a train, <laughs> or a camera spool. Wow. <laughs> Loops are macaroni art, a train, or a camera spool. You know, a train going around and around in circles, that's a loop, and you can make, you know, those little curly macaroni things into a loop, and a camera spool, of course, that's a... So there you go. Now, I'll do one more here. Um, this is kind of complicated and ingenious. Uh, okay, so you got a gal named Nora, 
N-O-R-A. And there's this guy, a wastrel. You know what a wastrel is? It's somebody who just wastes his time, wastes his life. He's good for nothing. Uh, wastrel Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, okay? Now, Nora is spending her time industriously sawing logs that are adorned with the flower goldenrod. So here, here comes the palindrome. Nora, alert, saws goldenrod-adorned logs, wastrel Aaron. Wow. <laughs> wow. That takes Nora, alert, saws goldenrod-adorned logs, wastrel Aaron. <laughs> they don't have to make complete sense unless you have to explain them. I always liked um, failures of punctuation, and there's a whole book of these, but um, there's a book called The Panda Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, and if you don't punctuate it oh. right, he, he eats, shoots, <laughs> shoots, and leaves. Makes a fast getaway. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Let's Eat Grandma. Let's eat, Grandma. <laughs> it's problematic, but unless you're a cannibal. Um, so there's those fun punctuation games that you can play. I play them with my students, trying to teach them writing tricks. Uh, yeah, so Vic Victor Borg, uh, the great comedian and world-class pianist from Denmark, uh, was uh, good for all sorts of fun things like that. And one of the jo his best jokes that I heard at a show of his that I saw was he said, a woman came up to him after one of his comedy acts and said, I haven't laughed so hard since my husband died. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's your classic double entendre, you know, like, yeah. oh, you made me laugh again, or, yeah. or I was really laughing when he croaked. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, it depends on how you take the meaning. <laughs> and and um, here's a little math thing, uh, which is very appropriate for our honored guest here, Don Harris, because uh, he deals with things that are falling. And... Um, you know, water, <laughs> parcels of water. <laughs> and, um, well, uh, when things fall, due to the acceleration, which is due to the Earth's gravity, uh, they accelerate. You know, they move faster and faster. Now, a lot of people aren't aware of this because, well, you have air resistance, which kind of, you know, uh, cuts into that acceleration, and, and you don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. But let's put it this way. When you jump off the top of a tall building, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it is the uh, acceleration that kills you because you're moving a lot faster when you get to the bottom than you were <laughs> at the top when you first jumped off. But anyway, so um, when something falls, uh, forgetting about air resistance, it moves a certain distance in the first second. Let's just call that distance, you know, X. In the second second alone, it moves three times that distance. In the third second, it moves five times that initial distance. So it's x, and then 3x, and then the next second, 5x, and then the next second, 7x, 9x. Okay, well, so here's the question. What is the total distance it's fallen after any given number of seconds? And, and so the, it's the same question as just what do you get when you add up all the odd numbers one by one? You know, one, and then add three to that, you get four. And then you add five to that, you get nine. nine. And you add seven to that, 16. 16. Okay, I'm going to leave this as a riddle. There is a pattern to those numbers, a very magical pattern. You add up the, each next odd number, and you get a special number in a special series. So what do we have so far? One, four, nine, 16. 25. This is, this is how things fall. This is, this is a picture of the acceleration, you know, in, in each successive second. They're moving at these. But, but when we add them, but when you add them up, the total distance they've fallen is that latest series, the 1, 4, 9, 16, 25. What, 
what is that? That's a sequence of some kind of special numbers. Are you going to answer that next week? Yeah, yeah okay. remind me. Cliffhanger. Yeah. So I 36 a, <laughs> and 49 are the next couple of them, by the way. There's a hint. So I have a kind of a question along those lines since you mentioned water falling in honor of our guest. Um, when I was a kid, we had this long argument after coming down the Nepali Trail, the three of us kids, about whether water falls or slides, <laughs> whether, whether a waterfall is falling or sliding. And I guess it depends on if it's free-falling, but even when it's free-falling through the air to the ground, it's sliding over other water molecules, right? So wouldn't you call it a water slide no matter what? <laughs> <laughs> Is that just semantics? I mean, why, are we, were we just parsing meaning, or did they really slide? What do you think, Joe, physicist? Uh, a descending sheet of water. <laughs> <laughs> That's so not waterfallish. <laughs> we had to come up with shorthand for something to call that thing that falls off of a cliff when it's wet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Yosemite would be not the same if it was that, what you mentioned. So. That's, you bring up a good point. Uh, now would be a good time, and like for the next month, to get Get thee to Yosemite. The, the spring wa uh, uh, runoff is going amazing. to be amazing. Yeah, <laughs> wow. the, and it just still snowed this last week and may snow again. So mm. the spring runoff for hydropower people is going to be phenomenal. And as oh, yeah. you said, it may be it may be more than the hydropower people can even handle in California. They'll be shutting down or over diverting some of the dams. You just hope that you had a good bypass for the water. And that Oroville Dam holds up, right? Because it's still in danger, I think. Didn't get totally fixed. Mm. Well, we're just about out of time. This has been Planet Watch for another afternoon. We so much appreciate you tuning in. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And Joe Jordan, keep an eye on the sky. And I'm Tommy Martin. Thank you Don so much Harris. for listening, and thank you to Don Harris for being our guest today on Planet Watch. Join us next week for another conversation about... Big solutions to planet size problems. Mm -hmm.